Last night, I was tired. I went back to my couch, my favorite couch. I call it the golden couch. It's where I, my goal is every day to land, is to get in the couch for that comfort. And I sit in the couch and I kick back, and every news station is talking about Paris. I actually fall asleep, and I'm asleep in that couch till 3 in the morning. I have it playing in the back, and I keep waking up intermittently and thinking, is God talking to us? Is he telling us something, guys? Is he telling us that the world is changing and there's need for us to be prepared for what's coming? So I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 119. We've been doing a series of Psalms, and we're coming to one of the last parts. This is a Psalm that's called, it's one of David's Psalms. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. If you look at your Bible and you have it, Psalm 118 is the shortest. Psalm 119 is the longest. If you look at this, you can see that the headings are actually the Hebrew alphabet. It actually goes through all of the Hebrew alphabet. So you start with Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and you go through, and you can see each of the sections. So we're going to go to Beth, which is B, very easy in Hebrew. And it says, how can a young man keep his ways pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I've sought after you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I've treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. We've memorized that before. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I've told you all the ordinances of your mouth. I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall never forget your word. It's interesting to me about law. I went over and I was been a missionary. I went over to see missionaries over in Kenya. I spent three years working in Africa with another organization. When I was over there, there was always tension in certain regions. If you go to West Africa, you have a lot of Christian influences, but there's all these Catholic colonies that are now countries, such as Togo, Benin, and they have, they're very impoverished. And then if you go a little bit north of there in the west, you'll come to Niger and Nigeria. Nigeria split right in half. On the south side, it's all Christian. On the north side, it's all Muslim. When you get to Niger, it's 100% Muslim. Now, if you go over to East Africa, where Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, it's mostly Christianized except till when you get to Tanzania. Much of Tanzania... Dar es Salaam is all these little cities are also Muslim. Now, as you get to these different regions, you could see the tension escalate when the Christians come together. So I was in Kenya, and I'm driving around in a taxi cab. And as I'm driving around the taxi cab, we're looking out the windows. We're in Nairobi, and I'm thinking how cool this is. And I begin to smell tear gas. Has anybody ever had tear, been tear gassed? It's a delightful experience. Um, I have my windows down, and all of a sudden, my eyes begin to water, and they feel like you could feel, actually, them touch your eyes. The Whatever it is, the tear gas part goes into your eyes. You can actually fee- feel each molecule almost hit your eyes. And I'm looking down this road, and I see this skirmish going on, and the police is trying to stop all the Kenyan uh, Muslims from attacking the city. And it was the first time I'd ever been encountered anything like that. And all I got was a little prick on the eye, teared up a little bit. But at the end, I see this conflict going on. And that's the first time I'd ever really experienced any kind of skirmish. 
as we started to talk about with some of the people I was working with, in Nigeria, there's, there's kind of like a line, and there's a lot of activity. Niger is 99% Muslim. One of the Muslims, one of the missionaries that went there actually went to Niger, and while he was there, they had actually gone to cities. And you remember Paul and Acts where they said they would stone him, and they'd pull you out of the city? They would actually throw rocks at our missionaries, pull them out of the city, and this guy would keep going back. He was from Nebraska. They make him tough. But this guy kept going back, and he was committed to going. And you hear the term Sharia law. Has anybody ever heard that? That is law that basically means this. Law that comes and is given only by God. So Islam is based on something called Sharia law, which means it's divine from God. And the thing that always is interesting to me is we claim to have the law, don't we? Who's right? Of course we are. Who's right? We are. And what's so interesting about Psalm 119 says, I delight in your precepts. I delight in your law. When I think about law, so many times I can't stand it because it means restriction. But here, David writes something. He says, I delight in your law. How can you delight in law? Because it's everything you're not supposed to do. You know what you want to do? Whatever the law says not to do, right? Our hearts are deceptively wicked. We don't like the law. We, it's sort of like the don't touch paint sign. You go up to it, and what do you want to first do? Touch the paint, right? When I was on a mission trip with a bunch of young middle school kids, we were in Seattle, and we were out of Yakima. Actually, it was Yakima, Washington. And they had made these huge pots of food. And they are all in metal pots that are about this big. And the kids were waiting in line, and they'd worked all day. And they wanted to see what was in the pot, right? And all the missionary leaders go, don't touch the pot. So I sit down, and I said, this is going to be wonderful. Because you know exactly what every kid's going to do. I'm telling you, every single kid that was male, the girls actually obeyed, the males opened the top and dropped it every time, and they would do this, and not one of them would not do it. It was do not touch the pot, and they would do it. Our nature, and I'm sitting here laughing because I love that natural law is getting, getting our children and teaching them a good lesson, but that is our nature. Yet here, David, what does he say? I delight in your precepts. I delight in your law. And I think to myself, that's not something I naturally do. Dylan said a couple weeks ago, he said, what I think about when I read the Psalms, and I think this is a very helpful thing, he pictures the reading of the Psalm, he's looking over the shoulder of David as a writer, and he's saying, what is David actually thinking here in Psalm 119? He's seeing the law as something wonderful. So what is wonderful about the law? Because when I think of Islam, what I think is, they worship the law, and it leads to destruction. When I think of Judaism, I think of a yoke of bondage with all the feast, all the things, all the regulations. As you know, in Jewish law, in the Mishnah, if you spit on the ground on the Sabbath, you have violated the Sabbath because something could cultivate. That is burden. But here David is going, the law is wonderful. 
Everybody turn with me to Exodus 20. I want you to look at a few things that Exodus 20 is about. Everybody know what this is? The Ten Commandments. Okay? Until I went to seminary, I never understood what this meant. Fully. He says in verse 13, you shall not murder. Seems pretty obvious. You shall not murder, so we got that one. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You notice that they're all you shall not. A seminary professor told me this, and I thought it was great. His name's Cal Beisner, and he said, I want you to turn that around for one second. What is the opposite of that? The you shall not or the prohibition. You shall not murder. So you shall what? Value life. You shall not commit adultery. So what do you value? Marriage. You shall not what? Steal. So what do you value? Why do we steal? We want something that doesn't belong to us. We should be generous. You shall not what? Bear false witness. You shall lift up others. Jesus becomes the visible expression of the invisible God. He is the great law keeper. And if you begin to look at what Christ was, what do you begin to see? You begin to see not the prohibitions, but you get to see what he's for. One of the things that's fascinating, why is it a capital offense in the Old Testament to kill a man and not to kill an ox? It's because we're image bearers. We are the image bearers. An ox is not an image bearer. So why is this important? It's super important, guys. We've gotten it wrong for so long on how we respond to these things. What was the first thing that France did? They attacked, did they? They took those planes and they attacked the enemy. Is that okay? And I say, yes, it is for the church to do that. Romans 13 tells us. One of the roles of the, I mean the state, to do that is their job is to resist evil. That's what they do. The problem is we've convoluted the two and brought them together. What is the church's responsibility? Church's responsibility is to bring life and bring a sanctuary. One is to bring the sword. One is to bring hope and life. The church is for the enemy. Do you realize you are the enemy? The church, you are enemies of God. You know what the church is for? That place for the people we don't like. And some of you are that, too. Some of you are the ones we don't like. We all are. I look at this, and I say, we have a response that's going to happen. Our culture is shifting, and I promise you it is shifting radically. This is not just a small thing. Years ago in Holland, a painter named Van Gogh was murdered. And during that paint. During the time he got murdered, all of the Dutch people put away their tolerance and became very angry with Muslims. What have we seen with France? They put away their tolerance, and now they're very angry. Remember when 9-11 happened with us? Were the French on our side? But once they got offended, once they got hurt, what did they go towards? The law. Our natural response is when anybody hurts us, let's go to the law. Our natural response is, when anybody does something we don't like, we go to the law. What is 
so special about the church? Because the response is opposite of that. When people hurt us, what does Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. What does Jesus embody? Not only keeps the law, but the law tells us about who he is. Why do we cherish and delight in the law? Because I know who God is. I know that God loves marriages. I know that God is generous. I know that God does not bear false witness against us. He lifts us up. He gives us a good name, calls us heirs of the throne, even when we deserve to be called the worst of the worst. And then ultimately, he loves life. Jesus loved life so much that he laid his own life down so that we could have it abundantly. Why is this important? Because you are going to be called on to do things in our culture that nobody would naturally do which is show grace. And the only way we can show grace is that we've received grace. We talk about this vertical indicative. We, one-way love, God loves us, and a one-way unconditional love. But because of that one-way love, we talk about a horizontal. We are here for our neighbor. How does that end up looking? What ends up looking like what Christ does for us? Yet we were sinners. He died for us. He didn't die for us because we were good. He died for us because we were bad. He is so good. When we bask in his goodness, we will have the understanding how to handle the world we live in because they need the grace that he so freely gives. Let's be grace dispensers. Let the church be a place or in a space for grace. And let it ever march on because the gates of hell will not prevail against it.